If you've got your Bible with you today, and I hope you do, turn to James chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 22 through 25. Don't forget, wiffle ball on the lawn today, 4.30. Be there, junior high, high school students. All right. Heraclitus said, change is the only constant in life. You might have thought it was said by some famous coach or some, you know, 20th century scholar, but it was actually said by Heraclitus, who's a pre-Socratic Greek philosopher who thousands of years ago, literally thousands of years ago, realized that change is the only constant in life. And over the next several weeks, I, I titled this series Navigating Change. And over the next several weeks, throughout the month of August, basically, I'm going to be talking about change because it is the one constant we have in our life. And maybe it's because my son's getting ready to go off to college and it's my last child I have at home and I'm old and I realized it suddenly for the first time. Up until this point, I didn't think I was. But suddenly it hit me, oh, I'm not going to have kids at home? I never thought of myself as old, but I guess I'm going to be. And maybe I'll discover I'm not really old. I don't know. I hope so. Maybe it's because I'm looking at things going on around me, societal changes, world changes, and going, I don't like some of the things that are happening. And so maybe it's because I'm afraid of change. Maybe it's because I evaluate where I am I don't want to say midlife because I don't believe I'm going to live to be 96, but let's say two-thirds of the way through my life and asking, have I done enough? Have I done enough for God? Have I done enough for others? And what do I want the next third of my life to look like? As I was preparing this series, I was working on it just about three months ago, actually. It was uh, right after Easter. And I wasn't even thinking the same way, but I'm like, oh, I need to do this series on change because I knew then that in September, I'm going to basically revisit a series I did three years ago on who we are as a church and talk about our mission and our vision. And I'm going to break down our mission statement. And that's intentional because a lot of people haven't even been here for three years. According to our numbers, about a third of our church has been here less than three years. Which means a lot of people, they might come here, but they don't understand who we are or what direction we're heading or why we're doing that. I had a conversation with somebody recently who said, I don't understand our church. What is our vision? So I began to talk to them about our vision and our mission statement. And I decided in order for us to be prepared to hear that, maybe we've changed. And we need to be ready to navigate the change that God is sending our way. So over the next several weeks, we're going to evaluate our response to change. If life is really in constant flux, as is our church, as is society, how do I navigate that? If Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, which I say and I believe, then what does that mean when everything around me seems to be changing? How is my faith perspective impacted that by that change. 
In other words, do I really trust God when I'm going through change, or do I try to do it all myself? Do I try to take it on me? Like, it's easier if I just get in control. When things are getting rocky, I'll take over, and then when things are good, I'll hand it back off to Jesus, because that's just easier. If I have control, it makes me feel better about Jeff. Makes me have less anxiety. Makes me have less concern. And yet, my, it really is a sign of where my faith is. If my faith is real and strong, then even when I don't feel like I'm the one in control, am I trusting God? I'm going to talk about how we discover our view of God as things around us change. When bad things happen, do we trust God? It's easy to say we trust God when I'm the one holding the ripcord and I feel like I'm falling, but I know I can pull that ripcord at any point. It's really hard when I feel like I'm falling and going, okay, God, are you going to slow me down or am I going to hit and splat? Because so many of us, we're okay with God as long as he's next to us. God is my co-pilot. Boy, that's pretty arrogant. At least let him be the pilot, people. But it's true. That's how we live our lives. We really do live our lives as if God is our co-pilot and I'm in control. But when I need something, I'll look and go, you got this for the next 15 minutes? Because I need to use the restroom. But I'll be right back to take over again. And that's how we live our lives. And I'm here to say... We are going to face change, and we are going to face difficulties, and we are going to face circumstances. But are we ready to face what God has for us? The good and the difficult. So we're going to examine change to ask ourselves and to lead us into, are we fulfilling our mission and our vision? Am I examining areas where, as an individual, I am committed to my church, I am committed to others, I am committed to letting people know the truth and reality of who God is? Or is that something I do when it's convenient? I pop in, pop out. To ask ourselves, what does God want from us corporately next? What is he going to have for us? Where are we going? Where are we headed? What are we doing? That's the question that I want to know. It's the thing I have to keep asking myself. Because I don't believe that we are constantly here. People come and people go, and it's, if you know me at all, my strongest trait on those little personality things that I look for, more than looking for love, is I look for loyalty. So when people leave, it feels like abandonment every time. And yet at the same time, I stand by the philosophy that the Holy Spirit is a river, and he brings people in and he takes people out, and it's not my job to build a dam. It's my job to allow people to come in to feed into my life and to feed into their lives and then when the Holy Spirit takes them to allow them to move on without trying to grab on tight. That doesn't mean that I don't value the parable of the shepherd where it says the sheep, but we're talking about sheep who are lost, not sheep who are simply eating in a different pasture now. But the arrogance of pastors is this. They believe that these are my sheep and I've got to care for them, but we actually think these are my sheep. If somebody else gets them, then I didn't do my job. And that's not at all the reality of what that parable is. And so, as a church, we have to be constantly welcoming, bringing, including, but knowing that at any given time, people are going to say, oh, I'm going to move on now. And that's hard, and that's painful. And it feels like, oh, I'm not doing my job. I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. You guys aren't, we're not living up to what we need to. And yet, at the same time, I want the Holy Spirit leading and guiding us. But I think a lot of people also use that as a cop-out because they'll tell me, God's taking it's time for me to leave. Why? Where's God taking you? Oh, I don't know where he's taking me. You know, there's never a point in the Bible at which God takes somebody 
and tells him to go without having a destination. And people will point out Abraham, and I'm like, no, there was always a destination because Abraham was always created to be a nation and to lead a nation. And in order to become and lead a nation, he had to go into what God had for him. There is never a time where God in all of Scripture says, just go and wander, just go and run away from. It's always called to something. We are called to something. And so it's this fine line of, I want us to be the people who are called to what's next, but I want us to be there corporately and as a church. And sometimes it's easier to leave than resolve difficult issues. It's easier to run than it is to deal with hard personalities. I've recently taken the Enneagram test. Anybody else do an Enneagram yet? People tell me what number I was all the time. I got everything from one to nine. I found out what I truly am, which is hard to live with. And, um, and so I was having a conversation with my wife. I've been gone to kids camp the last two weeks. Uh, one week was with our church, and then um, the executive director of Impact Camps, I'm his assistant, so I just go and do whatever he needs me to do. And so I'm there, and so we did the Enneagram together. And I was talking to my wife on the phone, and she's in the middle of reading a book about the Enneagrams. And so she's like, well, I know you're not this or this. And so we're having these conversations, and it all comes down to, you know my biggest problem? I think probably the same problem a lot of people. I don't really like myself. I put up with myself because I don't have a choice and I can't escape, but I don't really like myself. And so I was reading the positives of this. And I was like, I don't like this, and I want to change this, and I want to change this, and I want to change this. But here's the funny thing. I say I want to change these things, but I do nothing to work on it. I want to declare, I want change in me, but I don't want to do anything. I just want to become more like Jesus without actually getting to know the Word of God. I want to be like Jesus, but I don't want to have to develop patience. I don't want to be kind. I don't want to be loving. All those things take work, and that's hard, and I don't want to do that. I just want to be a better person. And that's how we do with New Year's resolutions and this and that. And I've told you before, change is hard. And navigating change and learning to do that as a church is going to be difficult. But if we're going to be effective in our community, in reaching people that don't know Jesus, and not just in bringing people from church A to church B to now they're a gathering place, but then in three years they'll be at church D, because that's what we do. If we're not just going to move people around, but we're actually going to impact and change our community, that means I've got to change who I am to be more like Jesus so that I reflect who he is to those around me. And there is time in our life when, we're, when we have to change. They say at any given time, 20% of people are thinking about leaving any given church in America. So you take, and again, these are statistics and they all can be skewed. But when they, when they do these surveys, according to Gallup, people that are in a church, the longer you're in a church, the less likely you are to change, which is good. However, the longer you're in a church and there's a pastoral change, the more likely you are to leave. So people that have been in church 25 years, as long as the pastor stays the same, they're okay with it. But when the pastor changes, they're more likely to leave. But People that haven't been in a church a long time, they're ready to just, ch they'll bounce church to church because there are no roots. There are no relationships. There's no, oh, this, this works two ways. He gives to me, but I kind of owe back to him too. 
That's, that's how it works. And so knowing that at any given time, 20% of the people in your church are thinking about leaving. Always in my mind, I'm like, what do I have to do to not make everybody mad this week? What do I have to say? And yet at the same time, how do I speak the truth of what Jesus wants me to speak? If we define mission this way, it's the ultimate purpose of an organization. It's the very reason for its existence. It's why we do what we do. If our mission is defined that way, why we do what we do, then why I do what I do is to try to create a safe place where people can discover who God is in an environment of love, acceptance, and forgiveness. I can say it in a few words, in a few sentences. But if that's the mission of our church, then I have to understand the vision. And the vision is what the mission will look like when it's lived out in your church and your community. In other words, it's the desired outcome of people discovering God. What's the desired outcome? People to grow. People to invite. People to include. People to disciple each other and disciple themselves. Which again, the reason that's so hard is that takes work on my part. I don't want to do work. I want to show up, you know, 2.5 times a month. I'll throw something in the offering occasionally. I'll show up at one of the three or four community outreaches we do a year so that you know that I'm there and make sure that you see me, and then I'm done. I'll be a low-level, non-impact volunteer as long as it doesn't require me to do anything. But you, want me to, you really want me to show up for weekly prayer? Come on, Jeff. I have a job and 3.2 children and a dog at home that you won't let me bring. I've been asked... You think I'm kidding. (laughs) And that's where it takes something on your part. And see, we want to go, well, but grace is free, Jeff. Why do I have to do anything else? And here's what I'm going to tell you. Here's what it says in Scripture. It says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Oh, that's painful. In other words, if you hear it but don't actually change, you're just lying to yourself. It's what I said earlier. I want to change, but I don't do anything about it. I just have learned to lie to myself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his face in the mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it. And is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. This is Jesus' brother writing this. And if anybody's going to know your flaws, it's your sibling. Anybody in here have siblings? How many of you know that your siblings were far from perfect? Not like you. They're far from perfect. Right? I see siblings in the room glaring at each other. Here's what the text is telling us. If we hear something, and we know, we we feel that down in us, and maybe we even like, oh boy, that one was painful, or that one was challenging, and we hear it, but we don't do anything, it says we're foolish. We look at our reflection and forget what we look like. Ever see a picture of yourself and think, boy, I look old. That happened to me this week. I looked at a picture and was like, wow. Now, in all fairness, I was making a face at the camera. I I wasn't making a face at the camera. I was making a face at two guys that were supposed to be making a video and kept goofing around, and it was my job to help them get the video finished, but I have no technological experience. I'm just supposed to make sure that they're... And I looked at them, and I was like, really? And I made a face, and somebody took the picture. And I looked old. 
And I want to explain to everyone who sees the picture, no, you have to understand, I was making a face at them. But now, if I forget what I look like, how foolish is that? Some of you know that I love nature. I love things about nature. I love to read about nature. And I was reading this study about two or three years ago, and it's, uh, it was on ostriches. And ostriches don't know their own reflection, and they don't remember anything for more than a few seconds. So, like, one of the only things you can train an ostrich is how to, like, where its food is. Other than that, they say you pretty much can't train an ostrich anything else. So they will associate their food with a noise, but other than that, you can't teach them to sit, you can't teach them to stay, you can't teach them not to attack their owner when he comes out to feed them. <laughs> they can't be taught. And so ostriches do not know their own reflection. However, and this is the interesting part of the study, penguins know their own reflection, and when given the opportunity to find a treat, if they have penguin cutouts and one is literally them, they go to their own every time once they're trained that that's where the treat is. To me, they all look alike. To them, they know. Okay, so where does that, what does that have to do with us? <laughs> what does that have to do with us? Too many of us walk through life, we're essentially ostriches. We know what we're supposed to do, but we don't do anything to try and change it. We don't do anything to put it into practice. We don't do anything to try to grow ourselves spiritually. We don't do anything. Don't challenge us because that means we're becoming doers instead of just being in God. And I understand what you're saying. And I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. Whereas penguins, they see and they know. And they know who they are. And they're smart enough to go back to who they are every time when there's a little fish treat or a little treat for them. It's not just that they can smell it. They've done it with as many as 50 penguin cutouts in a room, and the penguins will walk around until they find themselves, and then if they push themselves over, there's the treat. They see and they know. By seeing and knowing who you really are, you can change. The reason I didn't like my Enneagram test is I don't like who I am. And I see all these things I need to change. I need to change this. I need to change that. I need to work on this. And that takes time. And so instead of putting in time... I want to just go, God, change me, and then get up and do the same thing I did tomorrow that I do today. And do that every day. I started walking again just this past week. Those of you who know me know that when I get to fall, I cut all the weight I put on all year, but I don't really change my habits enough to keep the weight off all year. But I started my walk again, five miles a day. My heel is aching, throbbing today, because I just started a few days ago but I know I need to change the habits if I want to get back in shape and get ready to head into my busiest time of the year. And so if I want to do what I need to do, I have to change the habits. I can't just look and go, oh yeah, I don't look good, I need to do something, and then the next day, do nothing about it. I've got to learn to say, that's who I really am, and when I'm honest with who I really am, I can begin to change things. When I'm honest with what my marriage really is, I can begin to work on things. But if I can't be honest that there's troubles, if I can't be honest that there's problems, if I can't be honest that there's issues, why would I ever work on communication? If I'm honest with myself and what's going on with my boss or my employee and the unhealthy aspects of it, if I'm not honest, then I'll just go, well, that's just them. I'll just keep working. I'll just keep my head down in the norm. But when I'm honest, I can begin to work on communicating better, being a better employee, making sure I'm really doing what I'm called to do. 
I could go through every relationship type of thing in our life. Another thing the text tells us is this. When we walk in freedom that Christ provides, we are free from the bondage of sin. It gives us opportunity to help others find their freedom. The beauty of the Underground Railroad is that the people who went and found their freedom were the people who went back and led the next group to freedom. It wasn't just a random chance. It was understanding and knowing how it works. If you want to help people find freedom from addiction in their lives, you have to walk free from that. You go, well, Jeff, I've never been an addict. Perfect. Then let them know there's a way to live without being an addict. If you want to find freedom from whatever it is, you find people who have walked through it and learn from them and grow from them and discover from them. You don't have to have been through really bad situations to help other people through. You just have to be honest with what you've been through to help other people through. And boy, that's so hard because we don't want people to see us as imperfect and messy. Jeff, if I do that, if they find out who I really was, that'll ruin my ministry for the future. No, it won't. It will open doors so that people that are experiencing the same thing can walk into it. One of the hardest things I ever did was tell my church that I had been through counseling. I don't know why. It scared me to death. I was in Iowa at the time, and I told them that this is what I'd gone through and this is what I'd been through. And I knew they were all going to hate me. Instead, I found out how many of them either had been through counseling or desperately needed to go through it, and they knew it. But they were scared to take that next step. Because I live by the Holy Spirit. I'm supposed to be cured by the Holy Spirit. You know, depression is an attack of the enemy. You know what? Depression may be an attack of the enemy. It can also be a chemical imbalance in your body for a variety of reasons. And as we age, things change. I love milk. If you know me at all, I grew up in America's dairy land. I'm now lactose intolerant. I have to take lactate, and I just let my body fight it out every day. The doctor said, just stop drinking milk. And I was like, well, that's ridiculous. <laughs> You're kidding, right? My favorite food is cereal. Some of you know that. People will go, your favorite food is cereal? Yes, my favorite food is cereal. I eat cereal almost every day of the week and usually more than once a day. Thus, the reason for me to need to exercise more. <laughs> I could change that lifestyle habit I could do that, but I'm not willing to yet. But see, it's a, it's a silly little thing. But once we see what others have been through, once they know, then suddenly it's not such a scary thing to have to go through difficult times, to have to go through horrifically bad things. For a while we had divorce recovery here, and it was interesting that we would have people that came, and um, the guy who led it said he was so both scared and embarrassed and almost ashamed to lead a course. And I was like, but don't you understand? He goes, but other people in the church may not respect me. I said, who cares? You're going to walk all these people through a course that you said that he came and told me literally probably saved his life by taking it because he felt so much guilt and shame and embarrassment over his divorce. But he took the course three times himself and then he led it three times before moving. And now he's leading it again after he's moved where he is now because he knows that there's hope on the other side of divorce. He could take people to a place that offers hope that I could talk to and address, but not firsthand experience, and yet he gives them hope. I love 
that. I love the idea of AA and NA because it tells us you can make it. Other people have made it and you can make it too. This one's not specific to the text when it says it's what the text says, but it is key to James' writings and the theme throughout his books. But you are not the only one. We are in a community, a family, a faith group, and thus we have a support system in place. The idea of getting in a small group, the idea of taking our discipleship course, the idea of everything we do coming together is to understand two things. You cannot know God outside a community, and we are here to support and believe in you no matter what you're going through. And so when you try to do it on their own, and people do all the time, people say, well, I don't believe you have to be a Christian to go to the church. Or the church is flawed. I'm the first one to say the church is flawed. But I also am the first one to say it's the bride of Christ. Stop making fun of Jesus' bride. It's humiliating and it's wrong to make fun of the bride. It's not wrong to want to change the church and make it better and more reflective of who he wants it to be. But it's really easy to stand outside and throw rocks at the things that annoy you. It's much harder to invite them in to sit down and eat lunch with you. It's really easy to point out the flaws and say, well, this, the church does this and the church does this and they did this and they did this. You know what? We're guilty of things. We've done horrible things over the years. Now, how do we get better? We don't throw out the entire institution. We learn to support one another in community. The hard part of that, the hard part of James's writing, is that sounds great, but if I'm in community, then I must be faithful to the process, and that doesn't seem right. Why should I have to do anything? Why should I have to do anything? Why can't I just show up when I want to and then walk away and not do anything? But that's not how we're effective. If we're going to be effective as a church, we have to be out in our community. We have to engage with people in the community. It really falls on us, and we don't like that. We want other people to come and do stuff for us, but we don't want to have to go and do stuff. So why is this so difficult? Because it requires something of me. It requires me to evaluate and to change who I am. If I'm going to look in the mirror, I've got to know what I look like, I've got to be honest with myself, and I've got to work to make those changes. I'm responsible, or I need to be, for my actions, my growth, my connectivity to, to the community. It's easy to blame others anytime there's an issue, and it's easy to run from the church anytime I don't like what you do. But in reality... My connection to this community falls entirely on me and what I'm going to do and what my response is, not what anyone else's response is. Whether they do what they're supposed to do or not is irrelevant. What am I going to do about it? Relationships are difficult. And a lot of us want relationship, meaningful relationship, without putting in any of the work. You want meaningful relationship, but you don't want to work to get there. You just want it to exist magically. I don't want to have to have people in my home or to go to someone else's home or to go anywhere or to do anything or to be around anyone who's going or doing anything. I just want to be at my house and then when I want a best friend, they have to know it and come over there. But not in my house because that would be hosting. So I'll meet you on my front lawn and you have to know when I need you there. And that's what people want from the church. I was in the hospital. Nobody came and visited me. You never told me. You should have known. I was in the hospital. You never came and visited me. I was out of town. Four other people came and visited you. But you didn't. 
We don't even talk that much. We should. We should hang out more. But somebody did come and see you. We're a community. The other reason this is difficult is because sometimes it feels like we're trying to earn our salvation. But the interesting thing is, James is writing this to people who already are followers of Christ, not to those who are looking, not to those who are seeking. It's not earning your salvation. It's recognizing that if I'm saved, these are the things I have to do. If I'm in the family, if I call myself a Christian, if I'm already a follower of Jesus, I'm being asked to do these things. I'm not earning anything. I'm recognizing the gift I've already been given. What's the difference? Entirely perspective. You're not earning your way to heaven by doing this. You're recognizing something's been done for you, and how can I not be compelled to give out of myself? It's designed to help us navigate our faith and to evaluate whether it's real or not. Francis Chan said, we focus on what God wants us to do and forget the kind of people he wants us to be. It's key to remember this. We are called to be a certain people. But in order to be who he wants us to be, we have to become who he created us to become. And he created you for so much more. And I'm not talking just about your occupation. I'm not talking about just how you define yourself. He created you as more than mother or father or husband or son or sister or employee or usher or whatever it is, however you define yourself. He created you for so much more because he looks at you and he sees you and he says, I've got a plan and a purpose for your life. And all these other roles we take on, they may be important, they may be vital. But that's not what you are to God. He looks at you and sees you as his child. And he looks and wants the very best for you. So this series is leading us into a September series. And we'll be revisiting our vision and mission. And we'll be asking ourselves if we know who we are, can we define ourselves clearly? Are we doing what he's called us to do? You know, my hope is that we answer yes, but there's probably going to be things that we're going, no, we need to work on this. If we're going to help people get to where they need to be, we need to be a place that's prepared and equipped to disciple people. We need to be willing to go through training to learn how to be more of a follower of his. So here's my questions I have to ask myself. How do we, I set up, how do we set up ourselves as a church as well as myself individually for what God leads us through next? How do I do that as a person? How are you preparing and equipping yourself for whatever you're going to face next? Maybe it's a great thing. Maybe it's a good season. Or maybe it's a storm. But are you prepared and equipped? And second, is my faith strong enough to face whatever challenge or whatever lies ahead? Because if my faith is literally just, well, when things are good, then I'm going to be happy. And when things are bad, I'm going to curse God. Then we're not there yet. And we need to work on that. We need to grow and we need to change. And in order to do that, we have to know who we are. We have to be honest with ourselves. And then we have to take the steps to grow and improve into who he created us to be. Father God, thank you for our church family. May we be more and more like you. May we be more and more real. God, let us be a people who not only know you, but are marked by you, are changed by you, are impacted by you. God, I pray that you be with our junior high kids that are at camp this weekend. Let them feel your presence and your peace. 
Let them be challenged in their faith to grow and to learn, to become more of who you created them to be. Let them see you and know you more. God, for our high school kids that are going this week, let them encounter you in a real way. Let your impact in their lives be deep. Let us hold fast to what you have called us to as we are an example to them. Let us become who you created us to be. In your name, amen. Amen. Thanks for being here today, guys. Uh, I just wanted to remind you of uh, one quick thing. And um, we updated our missions bulletin board. So if you get a chance, as you're going back to pick up your kids from Sunday school or using the restroom or whatever, check it out. We've got Lighthouse up there. We've got the Mexico trip up there. I'd love for you to see kind of what's going on, what has gone on, and who we partner with. Um, Sometimes people are like, Jeff, we need to communicate more. And I'm always like, well, what, what do you want me to do? This is a great way for you to see some of the people that are involved in missions and then some of the things that we're involved in as a church. So I'm not asking you to do anything other than to look at it, acknowledge that you see it, and learn from it. So I guess that is something, but it's not much. It's a bulletin board. Give yourself two minutes. All right, thanks. I'll see you guys next week.